this is Wayne Zell and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, a video cast that's meant to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. And it features special guests and special content of interest to entrepreneurs and executives all around the country. Today, I'm welcoming my special guest, Jim Schlexer. Welcome, Jim. Welcome and welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank a guest. you, Wayne. Thanks for having me, buddy. A little bit about Jim. Um, he's uh, the best way I can describe him is he's a man for all seasons. He's a Renaissance man. He's a soccer player. He's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. My goodness. Uh, he is a level one sommelier, uh, which, you know, very few people can achieve. And, and he's an engineer and he helped as a CEO. He helped grow and sell a company that was worth $1.8 billion. So he knows what he's talking about. And today we're going to be talking about three things, mainly uh, how uh, he got to write this fabulous book called Great CEOs Are Lazy. And it was written uh, back in 2016. We're going to dig into that book because I use it as a, as a guidebook for myself. Second thing we're going to talk about is the CEO project, which he leads. And uh, it's a very interesting way of bringing peers together to help each other, CEOs help each other uh, maximize their wealth and their utility. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is Jim's last book. I think it was the last book called The Professional Drinking Book. And it's going to show us all how to drink professionally as opposed to being the amateurs that we are. You know, who, who knew it was a job? I would have applied a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'd like to become a professional drinker someday. <laughs> so first, uh, a little bit about your background. How did you get to where you are today? I mean, what's, what's your, your quick bio and, and, and how, do, how you arrived at, uh, at the current Yeah, I mean, educationally, an engineer and an MBA, which a lot of sort of business leaders end up having ultimately. Um, did engineering briefly, thank God, because I'm a horrible engineer, um, went into sales and marketing, went better at that. And then uh, pretty early in my life, actually 29 years old, I started running companies. Um, and I've run a series of companies ever since that time. So a capital equipment company, instrumentation controls company, tele uh, telecommunication company, and then now the, the CEO project. And I've also kind of stepped into a few different firms that I invested in as well. So, uh, Pretty broad range of uh, companies that I actually run myself. How did you become a CEO? Gosh. Well, the first job of a general manager was uh, I, I was given an opportunity when I was 29 years old. And, you know, I would say it was a giant mistake on the part of the guy who gave me the job. Because I, well, no, I made lots of mistakes, man. I mean, I just was 29 years old. What do you want? Right. Um, and I, but it turns out I was good at it. Uh, I learned it over time and I got better, better, better. And, um, that's what got me in the job. And, and, you know, there's some element I really enjoyed getting things done through and with people. And that is a mark of a CEO. You know, I, I didn't want to do a job all my, by myself. I didn't want to be an individual contributor. Um, I enjoyed the intellectual stimulation of the job. I liked working with people. I liked getting a great outcome together. And, you know, so it was a, it was a dang good job. And I like being in, in and I like being in charge. I will admit that that's uh, anybody who takes that job and says they don't enjoy power, at least a little bit, um, is lying to you. Well, ultimately, it led you to do a variety of things. But you wrote this excellent book, Great CEOs Are Lazy, back in 2016. Yep. And it says how exceptional CEOs do more in less time. The first question that came to my mind when I'm reading this book, and I've read it a couple of times, and I use it it's right by my bedside. I have it you know, underlined, you know, highlighted, et cetera. How can a great CEO be lazy? 
I mean, yeah, well, tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start with the title was designed to catch your attention, which it did, right? It did. But, but the concept, and you've read the book, is that really great CEOs, and this was developed by talking to thousands of CEOs in the work that we do with advising CEOs. I could figure out if somebody was a really good CEO or a poor CEO in about three minutes. And one of the key questions was, how many hours a week do they work? And if the answer was 80 hours a week, unless there was something really exceptional going on, some massive acquisition or something crazy like that, mm -hmm. then people that in a normal course of events work 80 hours a week, A, it's not sustainable, and B, they are not in control of their responsibilities. CEOs that were in control of their responsibilities were working, you know, 40, 50. Eh, sometimes they pop out at 60 when they're traveling or whatever. And the key difference, you know, what was the difference between these two groups of people? And it was that the people that were, were great CEOs and working more limited amounts of hours is that they focused on the things that really mattered and they spent 30, 40, 50% of their time on what we call the point of constraint or the kink in the hose, the thing that's going to dramatically change the business. And all the other baloney that we work on as CEOs, they minimized. And let me just go back for a second. You know, I talked yeah. about having an MBA. That is the fault of our MBA education. What is when I got my degree, what they talked about is stakeholders. And so as CEOs, we all have stakeholders, you know, our employees, our vendors, our environment, our community, our banker, all that's our stake, our investor, all our stakeholders. So what CEOs go, I got this. I'm going to just peanut butter my time. 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%. Everybody gets 10%. Everybody's going to be happy. And that is absolutely the, not the way to get anything interesting done. What a really good CEO goes, I'm going to minimize all of that to about 20% of my time. I'm going to spend all my time on the one or two things that absolutely will make the difference in the business. But here's the thing. Once they're done working on the things that matter, you can only put so many hours on that stuff. And they right. go, okay, I'm not going to expand my hours needlessly. So I'm going home or I'm going water skiing or I'm going to chase my dog or whatever turns them on. And that's what I mean by lazy. They're consciously not trying to work a lot of hours. And still get the job done and do other things do their passion well, hopefully yeah become professional drinkers <laughs> when when you say unkinking the hose that which which to me is a fabulous metaphor my first question that always comes into my mind and i go back to the book and it you know i try to refresh my memory is how do you find the kink in the hose so um you know the, and the kink in the hose is this systems model that we've got the idea is that in any system you can name there's a what the system is supposed to do. In the case of a hose, it's supposed to put water out the end of the hose. Right. But sometimes there's a kink in the hose. And the kink prevents the system from accomplishing what it's supposed to do. So the job is follow the hose till I find the kink, unkink it, and then the hose can do its job. Well, your business is a system just like a hose is. Somewhere in your business, there's a point of constraint, a kink in the hose. So our job as CEOs is to find the kink and open it up. And if you consistently do that, find the kink and open it up, you will dramatically improve the performance of your business with the minimum amount of time required to accomplish it. So how do you find the kink? So one of the things I talk about in the book is five hats. And uh, two of the hats, the learner hat, and this is the hat where we're going to explore new things, meet competitors, go to shows, read books, all that stuff that we do to put knowledge into our noggin. And the analyst hat, or what I think I called the uh, engineer. 
No, 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 no. I think called an analyst. Oh, the architect? No, no. Anyway, analyst. That's what I call it now. I don't know what I called it in the book. It was a few years ago. Oh, a learner and player. Learner and player. Oh, so the players, the so guy. Lear, lear, pardon, pardon me. Yeah. Both of these are under the heading of learner. Okay. Analyst is looking at uh, documents, um, analyzing, um, uh, gathering, doing spreadsheets. So it's data. Player, and 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 that's all of the stuff I talked about before. I, I call that an, uh, analyst now. It's learner in the book. Okay. The other hat you can wear to find the kink is player, and let's say, and that means go do the job. And by doing the job, you're going to pretty quickly figure out where the problem is. I give you the example I give here is if I was running a call center Mm -hmm. and um, like, geez, we're just not making our numbers. I don't know what's going on. Like there's a kink in that hose somewhere. If I went and worked in that call center for four hours, taking phone calls, doing the jobs, I guarantee you that a good CEO would walk out the door and go, all right, I got a list of 10 things that I got to change and that's going to fix the problem. Here's the problem. Here are the 10 things we're going to do to fix it. Analysts can get there too. You know, look at the numbers, call, call, you know, we're on the call too long. We don't close at the right rate. We don't, okay, that's what's going on. So you can do it from your desk with analysis or you can do it through player mode. I, what I found is entrepreneurs and extroverts tend to like to go in player mode, like go do, be active. Mm-hmm. more introverted people tend to like, I'm going to analyze. I'm going to like, look at the documents. I'm going to, and I'm going to figure out what's going on that way. And and by the way, they both work. So it, it, either one's good. Have you found that most CEOs are extroverts or introverts? Well, they have a bias for action. Okay. Uh, so they tend to like player mode. Yeah. yeah. So even if they're introverted, they still want to go do right. Yeah. And do you feel that, a CEO has to be able to wear all five hats, be the learner, the architect, the engineer, the the coach, and yeah. the player. Yeah. So the other three hats that we talk about are architect, which is business model design. You know, am I in the right business? Margin, pricing, all that stuff. Who am mm-hmm. I selling to? Mm-hmm. Uh, engine, uh, coach, do I have the right people? Are they advised correctly? Are they focused in the right areas? And then engineer, the processes I use to run my business, which include everything from values to your IT system. Look, we all got gifts, you know, some things we're good at, some things we're not good at. Hopefully you're smart enough and have enough emotional intelligence to figure out which ones you stink at. And then you go hire somebody who's better than you at and let them do it for you. you So I don't, I don't think you have to be great at everything. I think you need to be like maybe passable at everything. And then uh, if you're not really good, and that's the important thing, I'll give you an example. Like if, mm-hmm. if talent was the issue and I'm running a, like a services company and I'm not the greatest interviewer, hirer, well, I'll go, fi- I'll go find somebody who is awesome at that and let them do that for me. Got it. And um, in the book, you have a whole section on, in, it's under the learner section, you know, you know uh, becoming a educated, be, learning mo- as much as you can about your competitors, about the industry, about how to operate a business, how to raise money, how to finance it. There's a section on building a board, board of yep. advisors usually. Yep. Tell us, uh, you know, I, the, 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 the quote that really stuck with me is, we are smarter than me. And that yeah. is so true. Yeah. I, I mean, unluckily I stole that quote, but it's, uh, right. I don't know who. Um, Art, artistry is, is stealing from somebody else. So <laughs> who's smarter than you. That's right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think all of that attributes to the idea that um, 
the more accurate mental model I have of the universe that I'm operating in, the better my plan will be, the higher probability of executing it. So, but, but there are, we always need help, right? And, and the really smart people know that they don't know everything. That's what's really interesting about bright people. I mean, there's arrogance out there where they go, I, I got it. I'm more, in the, I'm more in the teaching mode than the learning mode. Well, good for you. But <laughs> really good CEOs and good are, don't. They're like, I am always willing to be humbled by what I do not know. And so in that regard, they say, maybe it'd be great to have a bunch of really smart people around me as infrastructure for me doing my job to make me better. And that's where advisory boards come in. You know, Napoleon Hill talked about it in Think and Grow Rich. He talks about building a, ma a mastermind group. Well, that's what, that's what advisory board is. And you are going to identify people with different skills to bring around you to help you think about problems in your business, issues, opportunities. And, and usually this precedes a formal board. So, you know, sort of the normal maturity and evolution might be advisory board, board, but non-fiduciary fiduciary board as we mature in an organization. But we start out with the training wheels on and we do an advisory board. Think about the skills that you want around the table when you build that board. I talk about, a, I think, a matrix in the, uh, in the book. And let's say I need, let's say I'm in e-commerce. I want somebody who understands China sourcing. I want to understand somebody who knows digital marketing cold, right? Maybe someone understands the space broadly, maybe work for a competitor. Um, so you think about all the elements I need to be smart at in my business, and that, that's the kind of people I want collected around me. So it's not, no offense, it's not your lawyer and your buddy and your roommate from college. Right. It's who would know things about what I maybe don't know enough about and would be able to show me things I don't know about and help me really pressure test my thinking. You can build your own and you're going to bring them together quarterly and pay them and so forth. And usually one of them's in a really nice location and to try to indice people to help you. Mm -hmm. But you can also join a CEO peer group and we'll do it for you. So we'll get into that in a minute. I know, but I, I, view ready to talk as, about that. I view those as competitive, right? If you're going to think about an advisory board, the other that's roll your own. There is an option to just go buy it on a variable cost basis from somebody else who does it for you. And that would be a peer group, a, a well-designed peer group. Let's talk about that. The CEO project is a well-designed peer group of CEOs. We like to think so. <laughs> you initiated it years ago and you've got people working with you all across the country, I understand, um, with peer groups all across the country. How did you begin to formulate this? I know there are other groups out there, I won't say yeah. the names, but there are other groups out there that try to do the same thing. Well, well, they'll bring together quote unquote peers uh, within, you know, maybe not within the same industry, but CEOs in different industries that sit around the table and try to give you advice on, uh, based on what your issues are, your problems are on how to solve those issues and problems. Right. How does the CEO project uh, work? And, and what's, uh, what would you think best practices in this regard? Yep. And I think you hit a key point of differentiation when you're building a group around yourself, they have to have a diversity of views. Um, there are like um, industry organizations where I get together with other people that look like me, like kind of grew up in the industry. We all experience the same, we all think the same way we all, and you're not going to get breakthrough thinking from that. But if you get, you know, a, a finance person and a marketing person, I mean, and, and they really think about the problems differently that's where breakthrough thinking comes from. You know, I experienced CEO peer groups while I was running various organizations. You know, I found them really valuable as I would pressure test my thinking or try to come up with new ideas. And 
And I had a group of people around me that were tremendously helpful on that journey. I said, man, A, I love the experience. I found value in it. It was, I talked about intellectual stimulation. It was, it's massively intellectually stimulating to be in one of these. It's almost like being on a board, but like a board that you wish you were on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I exited the corporate environment uh, quite a few years ago, I looked around at, you know, opening up a Dunkin' Donuts and all kinds of stuff. And I said, you know, I really like that peer group business. And then that was what got me into it. And grew from one, two, five. And now we have about 125 CEOs that we work with around the country, all different industries. Um, I've got advisors that use the methodology I developed. The book talks a bit about some of that. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's it's been a great fit for me. And And part of what I like about it, Wayne, is the ability to impact hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people's lives through better business being done by influencing the CEOs, right? Because think about all the people that work for the people we influence. Yes. We've made all their lives better. Maybe a little teeny weeny bit, but, you know, little teeny weeny bit times 500,000 or a million people, it turns into a real number. So that's what how I many, really like about it. How many CEOs typically uh, uh, get together in one group? Yeah. So eight. And I think the key is um, we, we only start getting interested above about $20 million of revenue. And we have okay. reasons for that, that below $20 million, you're really doing CEO and one, two, three, five other jobs, you know, yeah, marketer, well, salesperson, yeah. accountant. Yeah. And so once you get to 20 million, depending on the business, you now kind of have an executive team. You can truly be a CEO. So that's why we get interested at that level. We go up as high as uh, 2.5 billion are our largest clients we work with. Mm-hmm. So we're a more sophisticated for a, a, a higher caliber CEO than some of the other groups that are out there, not to pick on names. Um, I think the key is the curation of the group that's around you. A, I think the size and complexity needs to be similar to yours. Why? Because the issues you face tend to repeat on size and complexity. And so if I'm with a small guy and a giant guy and like the giant guy forgot my problems and the the small guy hasn't even had them yet, right? But if they're all in that same band of of size and complexity, like I'm trying to think about how to reformulate uh, my sales compensation plan. Like, oh, geez, I did that a year ago. Let me just hand you my whole plan and you can use mine, right? (laughs) That's what I mean by like, it just accelerates the path. So that's one. I think the second is the rigor of the methodology. You have to have a rigorous methodology. And this idea of focusing on the point of constraint and not wasting our time with other stuff. We don't bring in external speakers. We don't do the rah-rah stuff. That's really impactful on your business. But part of the reason why a good curated group is important is I'm going to get an impact on my issue when I get my group to help me, but then I'm going to help you. It's kind of the quid pro quo of a, of a peer group. And I'm going to go, I love how Wayne deals with these kind of problems. I'm going to steal some of his style. I'm going to learn how to be a better CEO by taking some of what you're good at and incorporating to my style. So we kind of accelerate the pace at which you become a better CEO. And then the final thing I think is important is the advisor. And there are a lot of advisors out there that were, you know, salespeople and marketers and, you know, maybe they, they got a coaching certificate. And I got to say, particularly as you're a, a larger company CEO, I don't quite know how you coach somebody you've never done the job before. I, 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 I'm sure there are people that can do it. I just struggled intellectually with it. So all I. of my advisors are CEOs. I think that's important because, you know, coaches, in fact, the coaching methodology they teach at the coaching, when you get a coaching certificate and people make a thing of it is they teach you to ask questions 
So the client discovers the answer on their own. Right. Well, I've been through that process with people. And I'm like, for God's sake, just tell me the answer. If you know it, just tell me. And so we kind of take that view. Like, if I got the answer, I'm just going to tell you the answer. And, and you can take it for what it's worth, but I'm going to tell you what I think. As opposed to, gee, Wayne, what would happen if we did that? You know, and let you come up with, ugh, I find it so frustrating personally. So I, 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 the quality of the coach, the quality of the group, and the methods are really important, I think. So uh, greater than twenty million in revenue generally, yeah. and um, and if they want to get in touch with you, obviously, how do they get in touch with you about the CEO project? Um, you can hit the website vceoproject.com, dot com, or you can Excellent. email me at jim schlexer at vceoproject.com. dot com, and we'd love to chat. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter, and we're all over the place. But yeah, no, I think it's it's an amazing thing um, that you know you've got an agenda, you've got a mission, but you've also got a methodology that is unique. And the, the fact that the advisors that are helping your CEOs, you know, moderate and mediate and, and, and work together all have done it before. And that's, that's critical. I, I have to agree. If you haven't done it, how do you know what to say? How do you know what to do? It'd be like you me been in business. coaching you on being a better lawyer. Like, how the um, heck am I going to do that? I don't know. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing, man. I got nothing. I'm running a business too. So well, it's, that you know, I can help a little bit. <laughs> the, um, the last thing I wanted to talk about today was you know, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, you came out with a book in, I think, 2020 or 2021. Right um, in the middle of COVID, baby. Right in COVID. Yeah, <laughs> very appropriate. It's called mm -hmm. The Professional Drinking Book. And it uh, basically talks about being in social settings where there's alcohol involved and, you know, how do you handle yourself? What do you say? How do you avoid looking like an idiot? But there's, there's also, it's also a primer on, you know, helping people build their relationships through these social settings. Yeah. And I think that's really unique. I've, I've, I've got a personal interest in wine. I've been uh, reading about it and learning about it ever since my, uh, my late brother-in-law, may he rest in peace, uh, chastised me over the glass that I was using for the wine that I was drinking. Oh, that's uh, funny. Years and years ago. So I was like, I got to learn about this stuff. So I started to learn about it, but I, you know, I'm still not an expert. You're a sommelier. I mean, how did you, how did you go through that process to figure out, to write this book? But, you know, first of all, why did you become a sommelier? What, what drove you to yeah, do that? So I, I, uh, I've always enjoyed wine, but I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I fell in with this group of guys that had these massive sellers. And I was just blown away by how much they knew about wine, Italian wine and California wine. And I'm like, hey, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I brought a knife to a gunfight, man, here. This is, a, I need to learn something. So I was reading the books, but I just, I struggled to get it into my noggin. I mean, um, and you know, when I, people that know me will know that when I do a hobby, I don't just do a hobby. I like, you know. So I said, I'm going to become a sommelier. I'm actually a level two. I'm a certified sommelier. Wow. Um, there's about 10,000 in the world. Um, and I said, all right, I'm going to learn it. And there are three elements. There's um, the theoretical component. And there I ended up going to another kind of school called WSET, uh, Wine and Spirits Education Trust. They're around the world. There's actually there's a there's a very, very good school here in the D.C. area that I could point you to at some point. Uh, Capital Wine School. Very, very good. Awesome. Um, and I went up through that to learn all my theory. And I read bajillion, I probably read 60, 70 books on wine. And then the other sec, the second section is tasting. And what sommeliers are able to do is what they call blind tasting. So you could give me a 
glass of wine within a range. I mean, it can't be crazy stupid, but within a normal range of wine, I should be able to look at it, smell it, taste it, give you the grape, the region, the age, the quality, um, uh, and all the flavor profiles of the wine. And Psalms do that because when I'm describing a wine to you in a restaurant, I can say it's got lovely, you know, red berries and crisp, crunchy fruit, and it's got nice tannins, well integrated, and it's going to go great with your pork with, uh, you know, reduction sauce, right? And you go, Mm -hmm. oh, that sounds great. I'll buy that bottle. They do it so they can sell the wine and give you a good experience. And then the third, and what I did there is I tasted with a tasting group in D.C. for about two years, a woman named Ellie Bechamel, who's an advanced uh, sommelier. She's at a, opened a restaurant called Aperio in D.C. Um, And she is a phenomenal psalm and educator. And we'd go three reds, three whites, whites, 10 o'clock every Tuesday morning, we spit. Morning. <laughs> we spit. Yay! We spit. <laughs> well, when are restaurant people available? You know, it's not at night. It's and they're they're still right. tired in the morning. So like middle morning is perfect. And we'd taste and you'd call the wine. Okay, I I get this, I get this, I get this, and and you name it. It's a Sonoma County 2018 Chardonnay. Wow. Um, and um That's brilliant. Well, and, and she'll go, here's why you were wrong. And she would educate or right, and she would educate you. And then the final okay. bit was uh, service. And there you are uh, in the test. You're giving service to a master sommelier. There are only 250 of these in the world. I mean, they are, think 150 IQ applied to wine. That's a master sommelier. They're insanely good. And they're asking you questions while you're serving their table. And you've, you've got a, a pace you've got to keep and the accuracy of the questions and so forth. But I had waited tables in school, so I was pretty college. I was good at that. So theory, mm-hmm. tasting, it took me about two years, tooth to tail, with a reasonable level of focus to become a certified sommelier. How much time did it take you? Uh, on a weekly basis, uh, yeah, 10 hours a week, maybe for two years, sort of. But even then, um, when wow. I took the test, I mean, it's a 50% pass rate test. Um, and so I went up to New York to take it at a, and there were all this lower than the CPA exam. Is it lower Uh, than the bar exam? Well, to be fair, a lot of the people that take it are, are waiters who want to become sommeliers. They may not have the educational background of a CPA or a lawyer, to be fair. You know, I have, I know how to learn because I done it. And so I was maybe had a little advantage going into it, but even then I took, I did the test, you know, did my theory, did my tasting, then did my service. And they're hand, they say, okay, we're going to hand out the diplomas for everybody who pass. And it's a very thin stack. I'm like, oh, boy. That's a relief. <laughs> so when they finally called my name, I made it. It's like it was the biggest relief I've had in a very long time. I'm like, I don't want to go through this process again. I really want to end it, finish now. So, What do you mean by there's no bad wine? Well, you know, like pizza, like ice cream, you know, is there bad pizza? Eh. Yeah, there's bad pizza. Okay, well, I've had really bad pizza. Okay. Is there bad ice cream? I don't know. I, I'm like, if you're drinking wine, you're with your friends, you're having fun, eh, just lean into it. It's all good, right? Yeah. I think the thing that people get worried about is like, did I pick a bad wine? Am I going to embarrass myself? And, and my answer is it's all about PQ. If I bought a $10 bottle, bottle, bottle of wine, I'm going to have a 10. It's going to taste like a $10 bottle of wine. There are things they have to do to make it t- only $10. If I buy a $50 bottle of wine, well, I darn well better expect a different experience. And if it doesn't deliver, it could still be way better than the $10 bottle and still fail to impress based on the price point. But generally for me, it's like I'm drinking wine. I'm hanging with friends. What's Life is good, right? So 
Do you give us any advice on uh, price points and what to look for in the book? Well, you know, 90% of all uh, wine that's drunk in the world is below $20 a bottle. So, you know, if you're in that $20 range, there's lots and lots and lots of good wines. Um, I think as you go above that, you get more esoteric stuff, more artisanship, more, you know, taste of the location, what they call terroir. um, And you expect more. Um, And I do drink those bottles. Um, So here's my quick advice. There are seven noble grapes. Drink those. Drink those old world. Drink those new world. I, I recommend this in my book. It's Jim's 14 bottle wine cellar, right? So mm-hmm. it's one bottle of each of the seven noble grapes. I describe them in the in the book. But, you know, they're Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Chardonnay, so forth, Sauvignon mm-hmm. Blanc. Um, f- f- uh, seven from the new world, seven from the old world. Old world meaning mostly Europe. New world meaning kind of everywhere else. Taste them all. Keep some notes. And you will very quickly go, ooh, I like New World Reds because they're big and juicy and that's my palate. Great. Then buy more of that. You go, no, I like how refined the white wines are from Italy. They're they're from uh, Europe. They're really elegant and tight and I like them. Great. Now you know Mm -hmm. what you like. Go buy more of that. But I think most people don't even understand that basic, what grape do you like? What part of the world do you like? And I think that's an important like first move in the wine world. Last question on wine today is uh, w- one of the notes that I saw in the uh, in the book was how to tip a, simil- a sommelier. And I, I never even knew you were supposed to tip the sommelier. So I was like, oh, my God. Well, I've committed many faux pas. How do you tip a sommelier? Well, let's start with you don't have to. Okay. Because they share in uh, the yes. economics of the table. And, okay. you know, you've probably gone to dinner where, you know, the, the dinner was – Three hundred dollars, and the wine bill was five hundred dollars, right? So, yeah. yeah. So they they get a piece of that wine sale, so they'll be okay. But when somebody is like really plays with me and is really helpful and attentive, and uh, on the way out, I do it in cash. I'll take forty, twenty, fifty bucks. I'll give it to them, and almost always they say, "You really don't have to do that." I go, "I know." You did a great job and I really appreciate it. And then that's awesome. It. So that's, that's just do advice. it in cash, do it in later, but you don't have to. But I think if they do a great job, it's really deeply appreciated. The other tip, just real quick, is mm-hmm. if you bring a bottle to the restaurant, which we can do in DC, not, not everywhere in the world you can, but if you bring like a really special bottle, it's, you know, a birthday bottle or an anniversary bottle or whatever, and uh, you'll have them, the sommelier, open it for you. You'll pay corkage for that. Mm-hmm. But if they're looking at it, the, they go, ooh, it's a 1980 uh, Chateau Petrus. And you go, if you'd like to take a little taste and bring it in the back, please feel free. I go, ooh, really? <laughs> please be my guest. You just tipped the sommelier. Believe me, they are a happy oh, clam. <laughs> That's a great that, – those are great uh, guidelines. And I, I recommend everybody, first of all, if, you, if you're an aspiring CEO, you are a CEO and you need some help, read Great CEOs Are Lazy by Jim because it's, it's a fantastic book. And, if, and for a little bit lighter fare, read the professional drinking book. But it's still, it's got great advice. You're a great writer and I enjoy your books. We've been talking with Jim Schlexer, who is a best-selling author, but he's also a man of all seasons. So if you he does have an author website at jimschlexer.com, which is... Uh, you can buy the books through there or go to Amazon and, and find it, everything there. And again, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Wayne. It was way fun. Appreciate it.
And uh, you can get this video cast and podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, and uh, stay tuned for my book coming out shortly, Your Multi-Million Dollar Exit, The Entrepreneur's Business Succession Planner, which is due out uh, very shortly. I can't give an exact date because the publisher keeps delaying, but uh, very excited about that coming out. And thank you for listening to Blueprint for Wealth and stay tuned for an educational moment right after this. Today, we're going to talk about board of advisors as well as board of directors and some of the nuances and differences between them. We'll talk briefly about what a board of advisors is and isn't, and its differences and advantages from boards of directors, the standard arrangements that you typically see with boards of advisors and the compensation arrangements for them particularly, and then how do you start to build a board? So first, what is a board of advisors? It's a group of individuals that helps the owner of a business manage the business better. That's the simplest way I can articulate that. And it's usually maybe up to five or so business professionals who provide advice on how the business owner can utilize the business advisor to make their business more valuable. It's an informal relationship. It's therefore more flexible than say a board of directors. It's used mostly in startup businesses and businesses that are growing very rapidly on their way towards an exit or an IPO. And they may or may not meet regularly, but the board of advisors or the advisor often provides one-on-one -on -one assistance to the CEO of the company or the owner of the company. It's different from a consultant or a mentor. A consultant can be an advisor, but typically the consultant performs single projects of limited duration for cash compensation, and a mentor usually acts on an unpaid basis and acts very informally uh, in that regard. So who should serve on a board? Well, the key members are experts in a specific business or in a specific discipline that help you as the owner fill your gaps in your business. It might include a lawyer who's a legal expert. It might include a financial or accounting expert somebody who really knows human resources, marketing and business development and sales is usually someone that is very helpful on a board of, ad of advisors. And then of course, somebody who really understands your industry, say it's government contracting or technology or both or retail or real estate. You want somebody with experience in the industry who can help you make decisions. What's the difference between a board of advisors and a board of directors. Well, as I mentioned, a board of advisors is informal. A board of directors is a formal relationship. Boards of advisors are usually formed by informal action. A CEO can handpick who, who serves. It doesn't have to require any kind of shareholder approval or even board of directors approval usually. And it's governed by contract with the individual members. There are no fiduciary duties that are owed by advisors who serve on a board of advisors, and they're not liable for their acts or omissions. And usually, usually they're compensated by getting equity in the company that they're helping serve. The board of directors, on the other hand, is installed by a formal vote of the shareholders in accordance with the bylaws of the corporation or a special shareholder agreement. The board of directors, the members of the board, owe fiduciary duties of care, loyalty, and prudence 
to the corporation itself and to the corporation's shareholders. The management, the officers of the corporation, are required to report to the board of directors. So the board of directors oversees the officers and the operations of the company. A higher risk generally involves higher cost to the corporation in the form of directors and officers insurance and higher compensation, generally cash fees accompany equity grants to members of a board of directors. The typical agreement with a board of advisor member includes confidentiality and non-disclosure provisions that are designed to protect the trade secrets and intellectual property of the company. It outlines or articulates what the duties and responsibilities of the advisor are, advisor are, and it may include a minimum number of hours per month or per quarter that the advisor is expected to provide to the company in exchange for the equity grant. They need to be available for calls with the executive team, and it'll also outline what the term of the agreement is. It might be just a one-year term with automatic renewals for up to three years or five years, and then, of course, it outlines what the compensation is. Compensation, again, usually is equity-based if there's any compensation at all. And when I say equity, it could be in the form of stock, could be stock options or stock appreciation rights or phantom stock, synthetic equity. But in the normal course, advisors who serve on the board of advisors typically don't receive cash compensation for serving on a board of advisors. And the level of equity obviously will depend on the size of the corporation, its capital structure, and the individual's background and experience that they're lending to the corporation and the CEO of the company. Usually it's between a quarter of a point and 1% to uh, compensate the advisor for serving on the board. And it usually requires vesting over time. Might have two-year vesting, so we want the individual to provide two years worth of service and with a six-month cliff, meaning that they have to serve for at least six months to vest in any portion of the equity grant, it also may require performance vesting. So somebody who's helping out on the sales side may vest in the options or equity that they're given only if they provide a certain number of leads or the leads turn into revenue for the company. When do you start a board, board of advisors? What's the best time? Well, You've got to hire key employees and you've got to hire managers. You've got to ramp up your sales and marketing efforts and production if you're in producing products or in your, you're in manufacturing. You've got to develop strategic partnerships potentially. And you may need to raise capital. You may need research and scientific expertise depending on what you're doing. All of these benchmarks are times when you may need to have somebody help you accomplish the goal of hiring the best employees, getting the best bang for your buck and ramping up sales and marketing and so on. So the time to, to bring on a board of advisors generally is fairly early in the process of operating the company. Where do you find advisors? How do I find the best people to fit the model? Well, first, start with the people that you know and then use their networks to try to expand your network and bring in the right people. But 
the people that I usually advise clients to talk to are their attorneys, their CPAs, other investors, people who've invested early stage, venture capitalists who've made an in inquiry into trying to provide financing to you, but you may not have taken the, their financing yet. They may be a good source of uh, providing individuals who can serve on a board of advisors that might lead to a venture capital event, investment bankers who can help you with the exit of your company or take you public, and others who successfully exited the industry. So people who've been there and done that are great sources of advice. Selecting the right advisor really is who can help you the most. And the first thing you want to do in evaluating where, you know, what type of advisor you need is to evaluate the gaps in your business. Do you have gaps in any of these key areas, finance, accounting, HR? Do you need capital access? Are you looking for somebody to provide you with technical expertise or legal expertise? Then screen the candidates. Don't just let them become advisors and give them equity. Interview them. Get references from others that have uh, dealt with them in the past. And don't just go for somebody who's got a big name because even though they have a big name, they may not have the time to devote to your company. So availability and avoiding conflicts of interest are key. That's some guidance on building a board of advisors and the distinction between that and a board of directors. If you need help in setting up a board of advisors, give us a call at 571-203-9355 or visit us on the web for more information on boards of advisors, corporate governance, and business planning at zellaw.com. Thanks for listening to this educational mo moment and join, join us next time for a special guest and special topic of interest to you on Blueprint for Wealth. Have a great week.